Hi there, and welcome to the Click IQ Academy podcast. The Click IQ Academy is a learning and resources hub for recruiters, shaping the future and featuring insights from the sharpest minds in the industry. I'm Alan Walker, and in this episode, I talk to the mightily impressive Mohammed Baig about how he's transformed hiring at VSO. We'll also learn how he's consistently hired over 4,000 volunteers per year and has managed to reduce onboarding down from five months to a few weeks for certain challenging hires. Hi, Mohammed. Great to speak to you again. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. Excellent, excellent. So um, I've, I've got to know you a little bit over the last um, few weeks or so, but for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Yeah, sure, can do. So I am Global Resourcing Manager for VSO. Um, what that basically means currently is I manage the resourcing or recruitment teams in three bases. So that's uh, the UK, Netherlands and Kenya. And the teams do the end-to-end resourcing journey right from sourcing to placement or job start date. And then for volunteers, they will do uh, resettlement as well. And as I've mentioned, volunteers, I'll, I'll say what, what, they, what we do is recruit employees as well as volunteers. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the overall remit of my role. Okay, excellent. We'll come on to VSO in a second for those that don't know what it is VSO does. Um, but what's your, what's your background prior to coming into the organisation you would now? So I've always worked in resourcing and uh, recruitment. So I have worked across the public sector, the private sector, and now the charity sector. I've worked uh, in the NHS. I've worked for private organisations out in the Middle East, uh, for large kind of franchise organisations. So I've, I've got a kind of varied background, but all uh, all in resourcing. Okay, excellent. And uh, so finally then, on, and on this getting to know you segment, so to speak, what is it exactly that VSO does? Sure. So VSO is the world's largest volunteer sending organisation that works in international development. Um, so largely what VSO tries to do is alleviate poverty in some of the poorest communities in the world. Um, the, the mission of the organisation is to have a fairer world for everyone and we we try and do that through sending very experienced, highly skilled volunteers to parts of the developing work to the world to work in programs uh, for up to about the average placement is about nine months. So it can be as long as two years and as short as three months. And the kind of the kind of projects they'll work on, how, how varied are they? So, so we work in um, thematic areas in education and health and secure livelihoods, and we have a, a developing one called Resilient Communities, which is tends to be kind of post-disaster work um, and within education it's it's you know it's, it's super broad in, in the world and in, in, in the international development world so what we will do is focus on things like early years um, and kind of technical skills and and in health will largely focus on kind of neonatal health and and uh, uh, once again early years okay excellent so um it's it's a very different world to the one that I'm used to recruiting in through my career, I've, I've primarily been in the private sector. Um, what what are the unique challenges you face then when hiring for an organisation like VSO? So, um, I, you know, there's so I think there's difference in challenges in recruiting for volunteers and different challenges for recruiting employees uh, for the organisation. Um, I think what starts off as volunteers is we receive an unbelievable number of applications. It's probably close to 100,000 applications a year. Um, wow. So it's a, it's a large number of people who are uh, very motivated to work on our programs, which is great. But of course, that does mean we 
what we commit to do is try and respond to every single one of those 100,000 applications within about two weeks of submitting your application. So that that is, that is a challenge in itself, finding the right kind of skill set. We are looking for people that are very skilled, very experienced in their fields, um, and that can be quite challenging. Um, of course, we are relocating people for volunteers, so we'll, we'll recruit them from all over the world and they'll be working in, in, in one of our 23, 26 countries um, where we have programming and that then has its own logistical challenges, which falls within the kind of recruitment sphere. Um, and for employees, the challenges are somewhat different. Um, uh, we, you know, there, there's obviously a, a difference in salaries coming from the private sector to the charity sector. Um, and that can be challenging. Brand awareness can be a challenge. Um, and the kind of culture is, is sometimes a little bit different to what people expect it to be. And you, you talk there about 100,000 applications a year. How, how many new volunteers are you typically hiring a year? Um, Just to give an idea of context, so you know, it's 100,000 a lot. Uh, 100,000 is, 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 is a fair number of applications. So I'd say we, we recruit in the, in, in the region of about 4,000 people a year. Uh, maybe 4,700 or something along that line. So you're going to get a lot of applications that you have to say no to in some some way, shape or form. So how, how do you overcome that challenge? Because it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's a great, in theory, it's a great talent pool you might be building for those all of those that you say no. But it's also an awful lot of administrative headache to deal with in terms of that, that volume of applications and also making sure that you deliver a, a, a really solid candidate experience. What have you done over the last kind of 12 to 18 months or so to kind of tackle some of those challenges? So those challenges were immense. And I think when I, when, when I took on the role, um, the feedback I would often get from candidates is never hearing back about an application they've submitted um, simply because there was, there was, the volume of applications coming in were too high and the, and the people responsible for reviewing applications would review up until they found, I don't know, 10 shortlistable candidates and then stop and kind of abandon the rest because there's just too many. So um, we had a massive drive in um, changing the way we manage applications to move it into a more kind of centralized function, which largely sits in my team. Um, the only other team that does management of applications is the team out in the Philippines, um, but they work very, very closely with, with all of my teams. Um, and what we did was we recruited some volunteers, funny enough, to help us do some long listing. Um, so we have a group of volunteers that are global that will do the initial kind of look at the CV and decline those that are, you know, really never going to be suitable for volunteering or very unlikely to be super suitable for volunteering, which I would say is about depending on which continent we're talking about. So for, for Europe, I think we decline about 44% of applications right at the long list stage. Uh, if the application is coming from Africa, I think the percentage increases a fair bit and Asia is a little bit higher than us as well. Um, so we get rid of, I'd say, about 50% of applications at long list stage. And then the actual resourcing advisors who work in, who, who are my team, they are looking at a smaller pool of applications, um, which makes life easier. Um, and, and then, of course, like you mentioned, what we were able to do is create quite a robust talent pool and indeed a talent pipeline to respond to kind of changing demand. When you're when you're hiring, you you mentioned that the vast majority of volunteers you hire, in fact, probably all of them almost, um, are highly skilled people. Is that one of your big instant cutoff points? If people just don't have the skills, then they're not going to be on the long list. Or are there other factors that play quite a major role in it in terms of um, someone's suitability? Yeah, skills and experience will definitely play a a big part in in the in the shortlisting. Um, a lot of it is actually uh, dictated to us by 
visa requirements of the countries that they're working in. So, for example, Ethiopia will largely only accept an ST level six nurse, which is quite difficult to find um, in the world. So, uh, that would be a shortlisting requirement because we simply couldn't send them there with if if they hadn't reached that qualification level. Um, so, so yeah, so it's, some of it is qualifications, but there are of course um, once they have uh the initial kind of qualifications and experience that's that that seems to be okay they will go through a host of kind of selection activities including a prelim quite a preliminary conversation we call it a prelim to talk about kind of logistics family circumstances financials lifestyles and then if they're if that all seems okay they will then go into a behavioral competency-based interview they'll have a psychometric and then post that they'll actually have the technical interview so it is quite a long selection detail selection process because we are relocating people to quite remote places in the world mm. they, they need to be pretty robust and um and resilient to be working in, in some of the communities that they're working in i was going to ask that was my, going to be my next question actually how how important a factor is the the individual themselves in terms of their personality their behavior their their robustness beyond those skills that's interesting to hear that that's clearly a a significant bit because they're going into as you say remote environments it could be challenging situations it could have to be emotionally resilient i imagine as much as anything else and uh, it's it's, it's fascinating that a lot of those factors companies may well say that certain behaviors are important in their organization but not to the same kind of degree maybe that vso have to take them into consideration absolutely yeah so you know ha- having all that kind of th- those soft skills or those uh, resilience within their personalities massively important for us um you could be as technically gifted and with all the years of experiences as possible but unless you can really survive in some of these environments and have that kind of open attitude, be open to learning from the local communities, ingrain yourself in those communities, and then and then bring about positive change. It's just not going to work. You've got to have a really good um, set of kind of behavioural competencies to be volunteering for with VSO. And how of um, how or why are you attracting so many applications? Um, so we re- sort of the largest number of applications come from from Africa. Um, so there is probably more brand awareness in Africa. I think a lot of people work in the third sector um, and we receive an unbelievable number of applications from Africa and then Asia and then, and then Europe. Um, we have you know, a, a, a global marketing team, a global sourcing team that do some really good work um, in promoting VSO as an organization. Um, so I think those will contribute to, to us receiving uh, a high, high level of applications. And also VSO is a 60 year old organization, a lot of people have kind of grown up with VSO and have seen its brand, have seen its image across across their country, and therefore will will kind of think about um, working for us at some point. And do you um, probably not on the volunteer side, but on the employee hiring side, do you utilize recruitment agencies at all to support what you're doing as part of your as as part of your role being to kind of reduce spend on that side if you are using them? So we, we we use recruitment agencies far, far less than we once used to. Um, I would say around maybe three, four years ago, recruitment agency use, uh, particularly in the in the UK, London office was, was really, really high. Um, and we've had a massive drive to reduce recruitment agency use in, in the organization. Um, and it's really worked. And uh, I think now we have less than, um, less than probably 5% of hires that are done through recruitment agencies. Uh, which is which is a great result. We've, we, it's quite a long journey to take, but it's um, 
it's worked well for us. What are the key changes you made to kind of drive that down? Because five percent is is good. It's good in any industry. So what we so, so probably technology has been a big factor in um, in in changing how we uh, attract applicants. So you know, investing in technology where we can track applications right throughout the journey has really helped. Um, so we have a applicant tracking system. We've got an external piece of software there where we can track applications, not only from the source website where we've advertised the role, but also right throughout our recruitment journey. So I can pull up a report that says, show me where we've got our shortlistable applicants for a finance manager position. And it will say these are the four or five websites or the two or three websites. And once you have two or three years worth of data on that, you can start using really good data to figure out where where's the best place to advertise, where are we likely going to find good applications from. Um, and then you, you you target those places, you do a bit of LinkedIn headhunting if you can, you do um, direct sourcing, you promote it amongst your own networks, amongst the networks of the hiring manager and the team the person will be joining. Um, and all of that kind of plays into to, to find to getting more quality direct applications. And it's it's of course the right thing to do in terms of you and I guess you're tasked to a certain extent to spend as little as possible on external agencies because that money can be used for for better purposes and good purposes, of course. On, Absolutely. Back, yeah, back to that. Back to the volunteer piece. Um, we when we chatted a, a couple of weeks back, I know one of the big challenges is around actually was it time to hire and the kind of mobilisation of volunteers, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Would you talk me through some of those challenges and how you've um, how you've decreased that time to hire piece? So time to hire is is one of the key metrics that we are uh, kind of judged on in terms of performance. That's the that's the percentage that we uh, report on that goes to the board and 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 then higher up. And what time to hire basically means is, um, it, well, we call it time to fill. Uh, so it's if we said there was a, there was a hundred roles that had a start date in in November, how many of those hundred roles actually started in November? How many of them started on the actual date? That they were supposed to start. So the first thing is to make sure that your your applicant tracking system has the ability to have a planned start date on it or on on the job, uh, and then that can be tracked against the actual start date of the individual. And once you have those two f- dates, you can start kind of judging your performance on whether you're meeting organizational targets and targets per departments, targets for programs. Um, and this this has been really really challenging previously, and, and actually continues to be challenging for for, for different reasons now. Um, and what we've done is create a a pool and pipeline of individuals, as I mentioned earlier. Um, even if we don't necessarily have that well confirmed, so a lot of the volunteer placements are dependent on funding, dependent on circumstances on the ground. Um, so what what used to happen previously is we we'd wait until we got the funding and then start the recruitment process, which would be you know, a few weeks of advertising, a couple of weeks of sourcing, a few weeks of selection, um, and then potentially you know, months, a few months for onboarding. And the longest part of the onboard is the visa process. Um, and it just wasn't working. It was taking too long. It was taking, I'd say, an average of five months to have someone on the ground um, post getting funding. Wow. And typically, how long would, how long would they expect um, or need somebody to be on the ground post-funding? When can, in theory, the project start? Once we have funding, almost immediately. I mean, often our donors would um, kind of struggle to understand why it's taking us so long to mobilise because it was taking so long for us to find the right volunteer and then deploy them into the play, into the programme. Um, and we're competing with organisations who could, you know, because they have consultants or because they have a paid roster uh, of individuals, 
where they could deploy within a few weeks of, of securing mm. funding. So, uh, of course, where I think volunteering and, and the impact a volunteer can have compared to a consultant is is vastly different. There's a host of research that suggests that volunteers really, um, you know, m make a larger impact because they embed themselves in, in communities. They live amongst the the people that they're. they're, they're hoping to have an impact with um, and, and, and it, it's a much better model. Mm. So, so, so donors want to want to fund us. They want us to be the organization that, that they work with, um, but they struggle with the timelines and a, a, a large mission of mine has been to reduce that timeline. So what we now do is we, we have speculative roles. So a speculative role is a role that's not actually funded yet, but we're likely to get funding, or it's the type of role that we traditionally work in. So the kind of, you know, that neonatal health advisor role, the, the maternity um, the maternity workers, the midwives, the early education experts, the school leadership roles, the, um, the teachers, et cetera, um, the, the, the teacher trainers rather. And what we will do is we'll recruit these we know we need these individuals. We're just not sure when we're going to get funding. So we'll 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 advertise. We'll uh, a speculative role. We'll 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 do the entire selection process. We'll, we'll, we'll and we'll manage candidate expectations really carefully and say we haven't quite got the funding that we're hoping to. These are the kind of locations you're going to be based in or could potentially be based in. And then we we make sure that they have gone through all of our selection process. They've done as much of the training uh, as possible. And then once we get the funding, the only thing that's left to do. Is a bit of onboarding and that's that's largely getting the visa and that's massively reduced the amount of time it's taking mm. us to, to to have people in placement um which has of course improved our our fill percentage i can yeah i can imagine that's huge you can you can take a huge chunk of those five that five months away and reduce it significantly and it, it's you know, it's a behavior we see in in many organizations are starting to get this stuff now aren't there there are certain roles that you're always going to be hiring for there's certain locations that you're always going to be hiring for and you know there's a 90 percent chance that that actual role will become real in the in the short term foreseeable future so it makes sense to get ahead of the game and start hiring for those people and as long as you're always honest with them and they know that this isn't a definite yet. It's a likely. It's a probably. Um, it's it's going to happen. Uh, we think <laughs> uh, with a ninety nine percent degree of accuracy. I think that's absolutely fine. And certainly in your world, you'll you'll get a lot of kudos by doing that rather than pretending that yeah, this is definitely going to happen. And then suddenly, um, they 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 know they're going to make a major lifestyle change, and then you go back and go, oh, actually, it's not going to happen. I think as long as you're honest and open up front, then it can it can work. Yeah, managing the candidate expectation is really, really important. That's what a lot of my team um, are very good at, is making sure they keep candidates engaged, up to date, um, and, and and have a very kind of open and transparent relationship with them. Um, the other thing is now moving that model into the employee piece um, mm. and, and doing that successfully is, is is the next kind of area of improvement. I was going to say, so um, and over the last, say, 12 months, so what other successes have you had? So we've we, we've done a uh, quite a significant review of candidate communication. Um, so we mapped every single communication point we have with candidates right throughout the journey. So right from when they see an advert, uh, or even our, our website, and when from when they apply to a role, that first kind of shortlisting email, um, the invitation to the preliminary call, the invitation to interview, psychometric, onboarding, training, placement, pre-placement, and the entire journey. And we've rewritten every single word of, of, of everything that goes out. We've, we've analyzed when we need to have phone calls and, and planned those in. 
um, and it's a, it's a global it's, it's a global organization. So we have to do this across across all of the SOS footprints. So all of my recruitment teams across the different locations had to partake in that. Um, and what that meant is we we a reduced the number of emails going out to candidates, which was part of my objective. Um, yeah. the communication now going out, you know, is much more engaging. It's much more positive. It's lively. It keeps it keeps candidates positive. Um, and I think it's it's made a, it's made a real difference in in the attrition uh, of of losing candidates during during the process. Um, because what you have to bear in mind, especially for volunteers, a visa process can can be a long time. Mm. So for Tanzania, for example, to get a visa for to send a volunteer to Tanzania can a minimum is five months and a maximum is twelve wow. months if, if if it's a medical uh, placement that we're trying to place someone in. And um, so keeping them engaged during that period becomes vitally important, um, and making sure that communication is is good, is informative, is important. Yeah, and it's got to be upbeat as well, and keeping them positive that this is going to happen. It's uh, don't worry, this isn't unusual. It's kind of normal part of the course stuff. And again, it's that that's that transparent communication bit as well, isn't it? So they they're expecting it rather than being surprised by it. Yeah, um, yep. I think that's really important. So uh, you've talked there about some of the some of the major achievements you've made over the last um, 12 months or so, which is really impressive. What about for the future? What what plans have you got there for the team and, and um, what's kind of driving the decision to go with those plans? So I think, um, you know, building talent pools is, is, has been great for us. has been really, really interesting work has, has resulted in better performance um, and lower costs, of course. Um, and, so the, the piece I just spoke about earlier about having that engagement piece for candidates that are actually going somewhere is very important. But having um, candidates that aren't actually right now within your organization or aren't in that journey to joining your organization, that talent pool that you've recruited, having what, what I would call a candidate community um, is, is probably my next mm. area of interest to make sure how do we engage with that candidate pool. So if I've got you know, 100 or 100 or 200 potentially um, people that are education experts that have applied for positions and um, they haven't quite been matched to a placement yet because of uh, funding or because of their availability or, or whatever it is. How do I keep them engaged? How do I keep them talking? Can they talk to each other? Can they talk to our our, our education lead um, within VSO, who's a thematic expert, who's, who's an amazing inspirational person? Can we organize calls that they can join on on, plat- on, on online platforms? And, and how do we do that? Also quite interested in doing things like... Um, heat mapping so you know like i said we, we attract applicants from from across the world and what's becoming apparent is is some labor some markets are more promising than other markets so um and and, and some markets are, are drying out for, for for various reasons so it's understanding that so understanding where we're getting our applications from which we can do really successfully but then understand the conversion of those applicants so how many of the applicants that i get from america compared to, I don't know, Sweden, how many of those, so Sweden and America is really like for liking the number of applications we're getting. How many of those are actually being converted to people entering our pool and then going off placement? And where do I invest my my kind of budget on, on attraction and sourcing and in which country, in which region? And then doing that at a more local level as well. So even if I look at, think about the UK, could I do a heat map of the UK and say, Across the UK, there's uh, more applications coming from Leeds or Birmingham or Manchester. Or, and, and then why why are we getting more interest from there? Is there more events I should be attending there? A bit of sourcing activity that, that could go on there. And, and doing that piece is, is probably quite um, quite quite interesting next. Um, I'm also quite interested in employee referral schemes. Um, so we do have 
a, a variation of a of a referral scheme in for my team in Kenya, and they have a great little program or project called uh, Each One Reach One, uh, and so it's basically for every for every person that applies for a position and is successful, they ask them to bring another one of their peers or colleagues or friends um, into an event uh, that we host uh, two or three times a year. Um, so they, they come themselves, which is great because it's a celebration of what they've been doing for us and they get to bring someone who might be interested in volunteering. Um, and that kind of is, is, a, is a different form of a referral scheme, but having a more even a more traditional referral scheme is something I'd be interested in exploring next. Thanks, and fascinating stuff. Listen, Mohammed, that's that's really interesting. I, I'll be honest; I wasn't expecting um, it to be so sophisticated in terms of what you've done historically and also what you've got got planned for the future. I think uh, many of us who've worked outside of the the voluntary sector and charity sectors, etc., probably assume completely incorrectly uh, that things are a little bit more traditional in terms of the approach to recruitment. But you're doing some really cool, innovative stuff there, and it's it's really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a you know when when I first worked and walked into the sector, I wasn't sure, you know, how traditional they'd be, forward thinking, or how much challenges I'd get to for, for new ideas. But it's been great. It's been a lovely journey. Excellent. Listen, thanks for your time, my friend. Much appreciated. Thank you, Alan. No worries at all. Take care. See you soon. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Big thanks to Mohammed for talking to us about hiring in the voluntary sector, and a big thanks to you for listening. Everything we've discussed today can be found at academy.clickiq.co.uk and any questions or feedback can be sent to hello at clickiq.co.uk.